never taking responsibility. We're listening to John Oliver on the monarchy. All while ignoring in the wake of the Queen's death, it just wasn't the time for criticism of her or the monarchy in general. It would be impolite. It's, but it's the been best two months time since then. For it. And Charles is king now. And while for many, the charm of his mother was in her longevity, she was the only sovereign most Britons had ever known, and her tendency towards silence, you never really knew what she thought about anything. Neither of those things... her son because Charles a man whose face answers the question what if two cousins had a kid is taking the throne at a ripe age of 73 he had to put it mildly an incredibly messy divorce and he's been outspoken on a range of topics from architecture to the environment they always to say that and homeopathic medicine including supporting a controversial he cancer treatment which involves 13 fruit juices a day coffee enemas and weekly injections of vitamins the point is he doesn't have the inscrutability of his mother or enjoy her level of public affection and his ascent to the throne comes as the UK is facing a cost of living crisis. One man even recently confronted Charles directly about this. Wow, that befuddled oh from him pretty much says it all there but that wasn't the only recent protest just this week a man threw multiple eggs at charles on the street <laughs> and when they caught him he didn't really seem that sorry given that this was the photo from his arrest he was released on bail with conditions including and this is true not being allowed to be within 500 meters of the king and not being allowed to possess any eggs in a public space which really shows just how far the power of the monarchy Caring. has fallen. A few hundred years ago, it would have been instant beheading. Now the punishment is, be careful in the refrigerated aisle. <laughs> so given that, Charles is now king and will actually have a formal coronation next May to be beamed by cameras all around the world. Before all that happens, we thought tonight it might be worth looking at the British monarchy, specifically to ask what the point of it is. First in the UK, and then in the countries around the world where the monarch still serves as a figurehead. And let's start with the very basic question of what does the royal family do? It's something that even they have had trouble defining in the past, as this clip of Prince Philip from... demonstrates. Could you tell me what is your job in your own mind? <laughs> well, I'm not one. I'm self-employed. <laughs> but surely you must have some clear idea of what role you fulfill in modern society. Hmm. 
Beautiful to answer. Wow! Hmm. It's honestly kind of amazing to watch him initially laugh that off before considering the question Ceremony. and then facing something of an existential crisis. But since that question seemed to stump him, perhaps we can help. Unlike in the US, where the head of government and the head of state are the same person, in the UK, those are two very different roles. Because while for centuries, the British monarch had huge political power, it was gradually stripped away over the years to the point that the position is now largely symbolic. The, the monarch's main role as head of state is to receive incoming and outgoing ambassadors and visiting heads of state and to make visits abroad. Here's the Queen meeting Narendra Modi. Here she is taking a carriage ride with Vladimir Putin. And here she is with former President Trump. Just two people delighted to be there. <laughs> you, don't, you don't usually see a pair so unhappy while wearing fancy costumes outside of cats on Halloween. There are also smaller responsibilities they do too, like visiting factories and opening things, and also, and this is true, sending people birthday cards when they turn 100. Basically, think of the royals as Mickey and Minnie at Disneyland. They're not running the rides, but they're a mascot for the whole operation, and people kind of like having their pictures taken with them. And the royal family's defenders will say that the ceremonial aspect of the monarchy is really the whole point. In fact, the royal family's official website describes the role of sovereign as a focus for national identity, unity and pride, and that it gives a sense of stability and continuity. But that comes at a price. As you heard that man yell earlier, Britons pay millions of pounds every year to support the royals, although some will argue that it's actually money well spent. Interestingly, the British state gives, or the government gives the royal family 100 million pounds per year, roughly. It's called the sovereign grant to pay for upkeep. But tourism generated by the royal family generates about 500 million a year. So that's five to one. I would take, I would take that investment return. Right, the monarchy's defenders argue that whatever money the royal family costs is vastly outweighed by what they bring in. It's the exact same argument thousands of men have made to their wives about investing in crypto. And it's going really well for them right now. But a few things about that. First, the claim that they bring in 500 million a year in tourism is heavily disputed. Why and it is not like that goes Kevin away McCarthy if the royal family does. You can still visit a palace if nobody directed? lives inside it. No one shows up to Versailles and says, and wait, no one lives here? It's a hard pass from me. And the notion that the monarchy only costs £100 million also has some major asterisks on it. Because while it is true that, as is often said, the sovereign grant amounts to just over a pound a person in the UK, it's by no means the royal's only source of income. The new king now has three main sources of wealth. The sovereign grant, money the UK Treasury gives the crown to fulfil its royal duties. The family's private wealth, the full extent, a closely guarded secret. Then, the Duchy of Lancaster, a private estate of land, property and assets. The monarch receives its annual profits. The Queen received $27 million from it last year. It's true, the Duchy of Lancaster is a massive property portfolio containing land that incidentally was seized by the monarchy back in the 13th century and from which they continue to draw personal profits to this day. So as king, Charles gets money from the government, money passed down through his family and money from the Duchy of Lancaster. And none of that includes the Duchy of Cornwall held by whoever holds the title of Prince of Wales. It used to be Charles, now it's Prince William. That is a separate billion dollar real estate portfolio, nearly the size of Chicago, by the way, which includes seaside vacation rentals, office space in London and a suburban supermarket depot. That alone brought in 26 million in additional income for the family last year. So the royal family's wealth, unlike their gene pool, is massive. <laughs> and while in 1993, 
In response to public anger over their spending, both the Queen and Charles agreed to pay voluntary income taxes. That arrangement isn't necessarily permanent. Meanwhile, the two duchies are completely exempt from corporation taxes and Charles doesn't have to pay any inheritance tax on whatever the Queen passed on to him. And when you factor all of that in, it sure starts to feel like they're costing a hell of a lot more than just a pound per person. So, is it worth it? Well, people can disagree. I think my position on the royal family is pretty well documented to me. They're like a human appendix. We've long evolved past needing them, and there's a compelling case for their surgical removal. But I admit, I am in the minority when it comes to British people. Many feel exactly like this woman does. I just think it's nice that we have it, and it makes us a bit unusual, unique. Yeah, I mean, it's nice that we have it. It's a, a British thing, isn't it? And I think a lot of people would like what we have. No. Okay, but, but it's nice that we have it. Isn't what you say about a freeloading multimillionaire family exempt from paying most taxes. It's what you say about a water dispenser in your fridge. As for being a British thing, that's not a great justification either. You know what else is a British thing? Mushy peas. If you've never had the pleasure, imagine emotionally unavailable guacamole. They're like if mashed potatoes killed themselves. But the fact is, 67% of people in the UK feel that the monarchy should remain. So for now, it does seem secure there. But that brings us to the second part of this story, because abroad, their role is a much more open question. Charles, as king, is now head of the Commonwealth of Nations, a loose alliance largely composed of former British colonies, 14 of which still have the British monarch as their titular head of state, in spite of being self-ruling nations. These are those countries. And debates have been raging for a while in many of them about what the crown represents. As we mentioned back in March, William and Kate had to cancel the first stop on their royal tour through the Caribbean due to overwhelming local protests. And in Australia, in the wake of the Queen's death, the Women's Aussie Rules Football League held a moment of silence for her. But given that they were, by sheer coincidence, in the midst of a 10-day tribute to Indigenous players, they opted not to do that for the rest of the mourning period, prompting this man to freak out. What a disgrace, seriously. I mean, that, that any sporting organisation in this country would think there is any reason not to honour the Queen is a joke. And why can't they have a minute silence in Indigenous Week anyway? I mean, it, it, you know, Indigenous people are Australian people. They were subjects of Her Majesty the Queen. And you can have your arguments about colonialism or whatever, but the Queen in this country and for the world was a force for good. What? You, you can't just gloss over the entire history of colonialism there. It's like saying, have all the arguments about murder or whatever, but at the end of the day, Charles Manson was a family man. <laughs> and let's talk about that history, starting in Australia, where Indigenous people suffered greatly under colonial rule. Researchers have found evidence for conservatively nearly 200 massacres of Aboriginal people at the hands of British military and colonial police, and hundreds more by colonists. And when the Queen herself visited Australia in 1954, First Nations people were not counted as part of the population, and children were still being forcibly removed from their families to be assimilated into white households. So have your arguments about colonialism or whatever is very much what we should be doing not glossing over it and forcing people to mourn a symbol of a painful past. And that's just Australia. If you really want to talk about colonialism or whatever, or litigate the extent to which the Queen or the monarchy in general has been a global force for good, let's do that. 
and let's start with the full extent to which the monarchy was intricately involved in the transatlantic slave trade. After Britain invaded Jamaica in 1655, the Royal African Company was set up by royal charter under King Charles II. The RAC went on to transport more enslaved Africans to the Americas than any other single institution ever, lining the pockets of the Stuart monarchs. Many of those trafficked were branded with the initials DY, as in the Duke of York, who led the company and later became King James II. That's true. The direct ancestors of today's royal family were investors in the Royal African Company and had their initials literally branded into people's skin. And both the trade of enslaved people and the high demand products that they produced, like sugar and tobacco, went to enriching Britain, strengthening its empire, and by extension, filling royal coffers. And I do get that people shouldn't be held personally responsible for whatever their ancestors did. But trying to talk about the British role in the slave trade without talking about the monarchy it's sort of like trying to talk about Jeffrey Epstein without talking about the monarchy. They are inextricably linked, however uncomfortable they might find that fact. Yet despite all of that, no one in the royal family has ever apologised on behalf of the Crown. Instead, they've tiptoed around culpability with passive voice statements like Prince William saying slavery was abhorrent, or Prince Charles going to Ghana and saying this. The appalling atrocity of the slave trade and the unimaginable suffering it caused left an indelible stain on the history of our world. While Britain can be proud that it later led the way in the abolition of this shameful trade, we have shared a responsibility. We have a shared responsibility to ensure that the abject horror of slavery is never forgotten. But listen to that. He can't even mention how awful the slave trade was without in the same breath mentioning that Britain led the way in abolishing it. British people love to talk about their role in abolition. But Charles left out a lot there, including that while, yes, the British did abolish the slave trade in 1807, it allowed plantation slavery to persist in colonies for decades after, meaning full abolition didn't follow for another generation. But the larger point here is, you can't have it both ways. You don't get to take the credit for abolition without taking the blame for what led up to it. If someone intentionally set fire to a Quiznos, then hours later put that fire out, they wouldn't get to post a picture of themselves holding a hose with the caption, so I did a thing. That's not the full story, is it? Also, for what it's worth, the effect of slavery clearly isn't just in the past. The UK was paying for it in a very literal sense incredibly recently. Because when Britain finally abolished slavery in its colonies in the 1830s, it took out a loan of £20 million, but not to compensate enslaved people. Instead, it went to enslavers who wanted compensation for the loss of income from their properties, which, to be clear, meant people. That is about £17 billion in today's money. And up until 2015, the British state was still paying off the debt. Amazingly, many learned about this for the first time when a few years ago the British Treasury tweeted, here's today's surprising hashtag Friday fact. Millions of you helped end the slave trade through your taxes. And I'm sorry, but that is just not a good Friday fact. The average person farts between 10 and 20 times per day. That is pretty good. Fish can cough. Now we're talking. Surprise, I know times are tough, but you just helped pay off the families of dead enslavers. No, absolutely fucking not. Save that shit for Monday, you buzzkill. Anyone thinking, well, that didn't happen on the watch of the modern monarchy. It is worth knowing 
One of the most brutal atrocities carried out by the British actually happened in the first eight years of Elizabeth's reign and when Charles was alive. Because in the 1950s, while Kenya was still a British colony, an armed rebellion was launched by the Kikuyu people, who had lost land to white settlers and found themselves locked into a formal racial hierarchy that placed Europeans on top and Africans at the bottom. The British sent army reinforcements to put down the so-called Mau Mau uprising, describing the situation to the world back then like this. Agitators urge some of the Africans to free their country of the white man. There is little reliable information about the setup of the terrorist organization, for few members even know from whom they take their orders. They obey blindly, savagely attacking the defenseless, burning, looting, murdering. Kenya is the battlefield of a conflict that cannot end until the Mau Mau is dissolved forever. Oh, righty-ho, the trouble in Kenya comes not from the British who took over and stole land, but from the people whose land was stolen. Now, is there more to this story? Surely, but will you hear it coming from a voice that sounds like this? I say never! <laughs> never, I say! In crushing the uprising, the British instituted a system of detention camps, and 90,000 Kenyans were executed, tortured, or maimed during the crackdown, and an estimated 160,000 were detained in appalling conditions. For a long time, the British met outcry over this with a mixture of denial and defensiveness. In fact, just watch this interview with a former British colonial officer who'd been responsible for at least six of those detention camps. When asked about reports that soldiers had put their boots on the necks of detainees, he has an escalating exchange culminating in the single longest pause you will ever see on television. I'll warn you, however long you think this pause is going to be, it's going to be much longer. Did you have cause to give the order to or yourself put your boot on their neck? of these resistors, the ones that were howling. Um, can we stop talking for a moment? No, because I'd quite like you to answer that. I will answer it when I have stopped talking for a moment. Um, I'm sorry, but I, I... Well, do you have a problem with that question? No, it, it, it's, um, it's a um, Hypothetical question. No, it's not. It's a very precise You've question. You asked me, did I put my foot on anybody's neck? No. Did you cause the order to be given? Did you give the order to do that? No, I'm looking at you with um, <laughs> certain thoughts in my mind. Holy shit! If you are trying to conceal your role in supervising torture, here's a few quick tips. Don't respond to a simple question by taking a full 23 seconds to answer. Don't then issue a vague threat like some kind of cartoon villain. And finally, try not to glare malevolently at the interviewer with what I can only describe as war crime eyes. <laughs> and just to be clear, we don't know what the Queen knew. What she is briefed on is kept secret, very conveniently, but we do know what was done in her name by her government. Her face was on the money in Kenya. When Kenyan's captors sang their national anthem, it was a hymn to her protection. And we do know that she was not only characteristically silent about those atrocities, you know, in that charming style that everybody loved, but she also awarded that man an MBE one of the country's highest honours, which is just appalling, unless the MBE stands for messiest bitch ever, in which case, yeah, I guess, I guess that might be appropriate. 
And that is the thing. If you are the symbol of a country, you represent what it does. And it is revealing that even decades later, when the British finally agreed to pay some compensation to a fraction of those who suffered in Kenya, this woman was very clear about who she wanted to hear from. Muthoni Matenge is one of the few surviving Mau Mau independence fighters in Kenya. Britain has apologized for some abuses, but Matenge did not get the compensation paid to other rebels. She is calling on the Queen for help before it's too late. Let Elizabeth bring what belongs to me. That's what I want to say. No middlemen in between. Let the compensation come directly to me. She should look for a sensible person and send it here. Yeah, that's completely understandable, and particularly the send a sensible person point, because when you are dealing with the royal family, it's very much worth remembering that unless you stipulate otherwise, you could end up being sent someone like this. Oh, dig that crazy rhythm. Exactly. And nobody wants that. Nobody. The point is, you can't say you're just a symbol and bear no responsibility for the, how the institutions that you are the head of behave. Take the Church of England, of which the monarch is the head. In Canada, it played a role in their system of residential schools for indigenous children who were forcibly separated from their families and sent to government-funded, church-run boarding schools in an attempt to assimilate them. Horrific abuses happened in those schools. And while they were largely run by the Catholic Church, the Church of England operated approximately three dozen of them, giving up control of the last one in 1969, which is pretty fucking recent. Early this year, Charles visited Canada and made a point of showing up at a garden that paid tribute to the victims of those schools. But when it came to showing remorse for what had happened, that seemed to be off the table. Because just listen to one indigenous leader who briefly spoke with Charles that day describe their entire exchange. You did say, um, I hope we weren't too bad on you. I didn't get a chance to respond, so we moved on. The prince, while well, he's in this country, uh, you should apologize to the Aboriginal people for for this trauma that we've gone to for 500 years. Wow, I hope we weren't too bad on you, he said, before walking away, which I know might seem bad to you, but as a symbol of Britain, it's honestly pretty on brand. You keep calm, and now if you'll excuse me, I will carry on. <laughs> and look, I know across Commonwealth countries, there are a range of views on this, especially among the older generation, as incredibly, even some who suffered under British rule can still feel strong affection for the Queen personally, even if they didn't love what she represented. And some argue, if the royal family is just ceremonial now, where is the real harm? But the ceremonial can still have the power to infuriate. And to see that, let's go back to Australia, because shortly before the Queen died, Lydia Thorpe, an indigenous Australian senator, was taking the oath of office, which required her to swear allegiance to the Queen, something she understandably had a bit of a problem with. So this is what she did. Please recite the affirmation on the card handed to you. I, Sovereign Lydia Thorpe, do solemnly and sincerely affirm and declare that I will be faithful and I bear true allegiance to the colonising Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Senator Thorpe, Senator Thorpe, you are required to recite the oath as printed on the card. Yeah, they actually forced her to read what was printed on the card verbatim, so she did that. But credit to her, because she then employed a tone of voice that did a lot of heavy lifting for her. I, Lydia Thorpe, do solemnly and sincerely affirm and declare that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II 
her heirs and successors according to law. Okay, I hate that she was forced to do that, but I absolutely love the way that she was able to make a pledge to a fancy old lady on the other side of the world sound exactly as stupid as it fucking is. And look, to go by recent polls, Australia, like the UK, seems unlikely to let go of the monarchy anytime soon. But other Commonwealth countries are already preparing to do so. Last year, Barbados removed the Queen as head of state. Jamaica is looking to have a referendum to do the same within the next three years, with one poll showing a majority supported. And Antigua and Barbuda, uh, Grenada and Belize seem to be moving in the same direction. And while the royal family has said that these countries are free to leave if they so choose, they also refuse to reckon with why they might want to do that in the first place. Instead, they've continued working hard to be perceived as a mere symbol, while never taking responsibility for what that symbol excused all while ignoring calls for true apologies and reparations to those who suffered tremendously because of what was done in their name. And look, you don't have to hate the royal family personally. I mean, Google Prince Philip racism or Prince Andrew everything and see where you land, but you don't have to hate them. You don't even have to think that the institution shouldn't exist, but if it's going to continue to, it is fair to expect significantly more from them. Because right now, far too often, they hide behind the convenient shield of politeness and manners, which frequently demands the silence of anyone who might criticise them or what they stand for. Will this segment even air on Sky TV in Britain? I honestly don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. But if they do cut it out for being disrespectful, they might want to seriously think about why. Why they and everyone else are working so hard not to offend a family whose name was branded into people's skin and who sit atop a pile of stolen wealth wearing crowns adorned with other countries' treasures. And if there is an answer to that, I would love to hear it. Though if history is any guide, I'm guessing that I'm just going to get an icy stare while you think certain thoughts in your head. But I really hope that they don't cut this piece, partly because this is a long overdue conversation that really needs to be had, and partly because absolutely no audience deserves to be subjected to 25 straight minutes of this. That's our show. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next week. Good night.